My name's Peter Heathwood, a good old English name for an Irish man. I was a history teacher, but my ancestors were actually planters here originally, way back in 1610. I'm sitting now in the Wave Trauma Centre up in North Belfast on the Cliftonville Road. It's a Victorian house, but there are adaptions added to it. It's quite wheelchair-friendly, as I am in a wheelchair. North Belfast, there was more violence here over those years than anywhere else. More murders were committed during the Troubles than any other part of Northern Ireland, even more than Derry or Cross McLean, because it's a patchwork of interfaces between Catholic and Protestant nationalist unionist communities. My own story was I was born in the south side of the city, Norma Road, which still is to this day more of a mixed area, perhaps more middle class. I had been married in 73 when I was 20, and me and the wife were teenage sweethearts, so to speak, and had three children. I had been a teacher. I qualified as a teacher. But way back in the early 70s, teaching jobs were hard to come by. There was a massive economic crisis after the Arab Israeli war. Oil prices went up through the roof. And they trained too many teachers here. So I found myself doing subbing jobs six months here, three months there, which was no good. I went to work for an insurance company as a head of a sales team. Six guys under me were responsible for mortgages, pensions and life insurance. I loved that job. I've always been a talker and it just suited me down to the ground. I was earning twice what I earned as a teacher. So me and the wife started looking around for houses. On the Ormer Road, the south side of the city, a house back in 1978, good sized house, would have been £12,500. On the north side here on the Cliftonville Road, which is a beautiful road, it's big Victorian houses, nine bedrooms, three bathrooms, magnificent properties. But because it was more troubled, shall we say, you would have got one for 6000 So me and the wife bought this house for 6500 down the street. It was my capitalist phase in life, which I always regret, being a lefty. What we done was divided it into three flats. We would live in the bottom flat, pay the six and a half grand off, and then we thought we'll buy another one and we'll, we'll become property tycoons. That was the plan. And as John Lennon said, life's what happens when you're making plans because it didn't work out that way. I was only in the house three months and, and the flats rented out. I was working out in Lisburn. It was a Thursday night, 27th of September 1979, and I phoned Anne up, my wife, and I said, Anne, I have a couple of calls to do here. I'm going to be home late. I'll get my dinner when I come home. Anne had made me shepherd's pie, and I used to love her shepherd's pie. And she says, I've made you shepherd's pie. And I says, oh, I'll come up the motorway, I'll have the shepherd's pie, but I have to go out again. And it always amazes me that I made that phone call, because this is the day before mobile phones. So I've been in, somebody's let me use their phone in the house. And normally men of my era would have just come in, the dinner would have been in the oven, and you would have had it. And that phone call changed everything for everybody. I came up the road... Sitting had my dinner, and about half past six was sitting with a baby who was three months old and a wee bouncer, playing with her and the bouncer, when the doorbell rang. Never thought nothing of it. Anne got up to answer the door, and I heard this almighty squeal, gunmen, gunmen. I was in a wee back room, I jumped up. I was a very big lad, I'm six foot three and I was about 14 stone. I was a sporting chap, I had a green belt in karate, I don't know, I was a very fit guy. There was no way out of this room, and I knew in 1970s Belfast when somebody shouted, gunmen, gunmen, they weren't joking. All I could do was get behind the door into the room. The next thing, this guy with a gun in his right hand, hoods on, parker jacket, and had my wife by the hair, and she was squealing and shouting and kicking. He came into the room at the last minute, he seen me behind the door, 
He let her go. I pulled Anne round and hit him with the door as hard as I could. Then them houses were big old wooden doors. They weren't these wee flimsy doors. Knocked him into the hall and put a bar. There was a wee bar, thank God, on the door. Put the bar in the door. There was a second gunman in the hall. Opened fire through the door. And he got lucky. The bullet came in through my shoulder, down through the rib cage, hit the spine in the back and out. And the other one went through the front of my chest here. And the other shots missed the baby by inches, who was sitting in her wee baby bouncer. I sort of remember trying to get up again to get back to the door, but my legs wouldn't work. The gunmen were, couldn't get into the room because of the bar. They were shouting sectarian stuff, Fenian bastards and this. And then he took his mate who was lying in the hall and they got away in a car. Anne says that I said to her, I was going in and out of consciousness, tell daddy I'm all right, tell daddy I'm all right, I'm okay, I'm okay. I was aware that my father had angina. Obviously, this was going to be a shock for him. I thought I was all right too, but I passed out. Anne, my wife, she phoned the police. The police came. They done all they could to stop the bleeding, you can imagine. I was about 15 or 20 minutes waiting on the ambulance. When they got there... The ambulance men couldn't get the big gurney into the back of the house. They put me in a body bag. My father arrived. And as I come up the hall with a body bag, Daddy seen me in the body bag and thought I was dead. His last words were, my poor Peter, and he just dropped dead in the hall. The police over there tried CPR, tried everything with him. My sister was with him, who's a nurse. She knew he was dead. He just knew he was dead. I didn't know about this. I hadn't, wasn't told this for weeks later. In the Matter Hospital, I was in a gurney. I remember the doctor slapping me in the face. Stay awake, stay awake, as he put a big spike in to drain the blood out of my lungs. But after that, I was full of morphine and really remember very little. I don't even remember. They tell me Daddy died because my condition was that bad. They thought the shock would do me horror. It was three or four weeks later before that happened. But my health went downhill big time. It wasn't the bullets that were going to kill me. It was the infections, emphysema in the lungs. I couldn't breathe. My body weight went from 14 stone to 7 stone. The bones were sticking out of my legs, come through my skin. They stabilised me. And then after about three months, I was sent to Musgrave Park, which is the spinal injuries unit in Belfast at that time. And the ward then was just full of people who were shot and blew up. You look at it now, it's car accidents and things. In them days, it was violence. I was in for 50 weeks. It took about three or four months to, to get weight back on me. The nurses were fantastic, and God bless the health service. I wouldn't be alive without it. About a year to get out of hospital, but I was never going to walk again. I remember the doctor saying to me, Peter, see that wheelchair? I said, aye, doc. He says, get used to it. You've been in for the rest of your life. That's how the news was broken to me. There was no sort of breaking it easy to you. Everything was very brutal in them days. It was just straight in your face. So it was 26 years of age. I had three children. My wife had moved out of the house and over to her mother's house, which was sort of normal procedure. If your house was attacked in case the gunmen come back, she couldn't drive. She learned to drive to come up and visit me in hospital. I knew I had to get this family back together again. Uh, so within a year, we had a court case, criminal injuries compensation case, which I got an award in 1970. Nine. I was earning £900 a month. The school teacher would have been getting 400 so I had good money. So the award I got was a record agreed damages. And if I tell you that record was £135,000, 
It's a joke now when you look at it, you get more for slander. But that the way it was in those days, that compensation was considered on your wages plus how long you were to live. So mine was a big amount because my wage was good. But I was still only expected to live 10 or 15 years. I wasn't expected to live as long as I am now. I'll be a pensioner next month. I took the money to buy a house to keep the family together. And that's what we did. We bought a bungalow on the outskirts of South Belfast again, back over to the other side of town. Then I started to notice the ripple effect of violence, besides losing my father on that night, and the effect that had on my brothers and sisters and my my mother. I started to see the effect of what had happened on my wife and even my children. Anne just couldn't cope with it. I would talk to her about, after I passed out, what happened, you know, what she's seen, the blood, her father-in-law dying, the squealing, the children squealing, that whole horror that she witnessed, she never recovered from it. Went to psychiatrists, diagnosed with PTSD, a severe amount of it, uh, depression, all sorts of problems. And she started drinking. She would have went to her room with a bottle of vodka or something and just got drunk. I could see it coming on her. Her eyes were like two stones. It was like she was just looking at nothing. And it would be something on the news. Now, this is 79. So somebody else murdered or something, and it would set her off in this depression again. I took her to AA meetings. We went through the whole ritual of it, but she just, again, the news would come on. She'd be sitting looking at it, and this depression would come over her. She would say to me when I would tell her, she didn't want to do it. It was just something she couldn't face. She would say, I opened the door. I let evil into our house. Why did I open the door? Why did I open the door? She never forgave herself for opening the door that night. And no matter how much I tried telling her, Anne, you shouted a warning to me. You saved my life. If I'd have been sitting in that chair when I got into the room, I was dead. You were brave. You saved me. It doesn't matter. I let them in. Why did I, why did I open that door? Why did I open that door? So this problem got worse and got worse. She took an overdose about 83, 84, but again, we got her into hospital again. More psychiatric treatment. She got out, just got as bad as ever again. The children, the same effect. The oldest girl, Anne-Marie, would have been sent for to primary school because she just started crying in the middle of class for no reason, just started crying. The baby, Louise was only three months old. The baby never slept. That child was the hardest child to get to sleep at night. And Patrick, who was seven that time, by the time he was 11, he was expelled from primary school. Stealing from teachers' pockets. Caught fighting with other boys. He had this internal anger. So the ripple effect of violence wasn't just me being shot. It went right into my whole family. And my wife, God love her, died at 51 years of age. Her health just went down the hill. She couldn't stop it. She couldn't get away from it. To me, she's as much a victim of the troubles as I am, as is my father. And my father died of a heart attack, I know. But he died at the scene of the shooting of his son. When the HET, the Historical Inquiries team, was formed here and part of the peace process, nobody was ever found for my shooting. And I wanted questions answered. Why the police done no fingerprinting? on the doors of the house. When they took the bullets out of me, there was no forensics done on them. An eyewitness woman across the street got a phone call to her house telling her to draw a description of the two gunmen or she'd get the same. Why was this? 
But the HET couldn't, under the regulations, take my case on because I didn't die and it was only for murders. When I said about my daddy dying, that was a heart attack. That would only be manslaughter. I couldn't get any kind of answers to what happened on that particular night and who was behind it all and what was it for. When the flat was rented out, the guy in the top flat worked in Short Brothers and the guy in the other flat was a taxi driver. And both would have come to me bona fide bank statements and that would have been it. I gave them the flats, they paid their rent, that's all I needed to know. The only thing the police ever told me was that the gunmen didn't meant to shoot me, they meant to shoot the taxi driver in the second floor. But they didn't ask any names when they came into the house, they didn't ask me my name, they started shooting. The taxi driver was unknown to me, I hadn't a clue who he was. But in 1982 he was arrested on supergrass evidence and was an IRA guy and was convicted of killing the governor of the Mays prison. Now, in 1979, nobody would have known that. I certainly didn't know it, because I'm from the other side of the city. Nobody, I didn't even know who the clue he was. He had the bank references. I gave him the flat. You would have thought butter would melt in his mouth, the quietest fella. He also turned out to be one of the later Mays escapers. He was one of that 38 that got out of prison. So he had a profile. It wouldn't have been known to me. But the police say he was who was meant to be shot. In the middle of all that melee that night, the uniformed officers were doing their best to save me and my daddy. Two special branch men walked into the room, walked over to me, and one put a foot at the other side of my head, and Anne made this statement. He looked down at you, and he said, Who the fuck's he? And when the other fella came down the stairs, they started punching him, and told him it was meant for him, that he was a dead man. Now, again, that's why I wanted my case investigated. Because I believe... The gunmen were sent to the house by special branch officers who would have known the history of the guy, which I didn't, and wanted him killed. If you take into consideration that the police officer who was in that hall that night was a member of a group called E4A, which was a specialist RUC special branch unit, which was later involved in the shoot-to-kill stuff at the border when guys were shot in cars at the side that drove through roadblocks. This guy was part of that team. The only time they come to take a statement of me in hospital was to question me on how I knew the taxi driver. And I had only known him because he taxied. The girl lived beside my house. She got a taxi from her down the Ormer Road and he was the driver. I lived in the Ormer Road and the conversation was he was looking at a flat and she says, oh, my friends are renting out flats. And that's how he got to find out about my flat. Now, this all was cleared in court by the judge. I mean, it was all mistaken identity. There was no way I knew who that guy was. I hadn't a clue. I have friends who married, and like me, their partners are still with them, and I envy them just to get old, you know, be a grumpy old man with a wife sitting there that you've known all your days and knows everything about you. We met when we were 16. We were together 37 years in total, and I really miss her now. I really, really miss having that life and lifetime companion and I find that really, really sad. But I also find it annoying that both her and my father are not considered victims of the Troubles. They talk about 29 years after the Good Friday Agreement. They talk about, you know, 3,600 dead and so many injured. But they never mention, there's, I've researched that there's 28 people died of heart attacks at the scene of violence. Now, I'm not talking about dying of heart attacks later. I mean, at the scene of violence, there's 28 such people that aren't included in those statistics. Not to mention how many others are, like my missus, have psychiatric mental problems. 
And I even think it's transgenerational. My eldest daughter, Amory, is 40 now. And Amory only told me last year that if she sees a man with a Parker combat jacket on with a hood up, she will still freeze for a couple of seconds. She says, it's just, I get a flashback just when I see that. She's pretty lucky there. There are people dealing with worse things than that. Then you have the seriously injured people. People like me, who our lives will never be the same again. Amputees, double amputees, paraplegics, tetraplegics and blind people who are left alive. And even though it's 20 years since a Good Friday Agreement and everything is now a lot better than it was, we still live every day with pain from bodies that will never heal. We have been campaigning to try and get Stormont to grant us a pension because most of us were in our 20s when we were hurt. So we never got to have a private pension. I would have had a private pension. I would have been an executive. and That's what they said at my court case here. And I would have ended up an executive in the insurance business. I live on benefits, as do all of us live on benefits. And that's not enough to keep me in living independent. It keeps me, it feeds me. But when I need the grass cut, when it slates get blown off the roof, need that repaired. So our campaign for a pension, it's about keeping us living independent. But the political parties here cannot agree on it. There's 500 people who are life-changing injuries. Ten of them are injured by their own hand. That means they blew themselves up or were shot in gun battles with a thing. Six of them from the loyalist community and four of them from the Republican community. And it's over those ten they can't agree. So the 490 who would get it get nothing because the DUP say those ten are not getting it, they're terrorists. And Sinn Féin say... Oh, yes, they should get it. So the campaign goes on. We're not giving up. We're hoping Westminster will do something. The British government, we met the Secretary of State last week, and the Secretary of State kept saying she's going to get devolution back here. Most people here will tell you that's highly unlikely. Certainly within a year, I don't see it happening. But we'll see what happens. I'm not holding my breath. The history of the state has been reoccurring violence even within my own family, I'll give you an example. On March the 7th, 1922, my daddy was six years of age, was at the funeral of his cousin, Thomas Heathwood, who was shot dead by loyalists at Unity Flats. He was 17, and the sniper got him in, in the troubles of those days. So my father was at that funeral, he had six years of age, not knowing that he would be a casualty in a future generation. In 1930s, violence, then you had IRA campaigns in the border in 1950s. There needs to be drastic things done here. The first thing I would say is integrated education. I'm an ex-teacher, and that is a necessity. But has anybody made a move towards doing it? No. Kids are reared in different schools by their religion, so they grow up thinking the other side has two heads. If they were in the same school and made friendships, that wouldn't happen. So if we want to get away from the sectarian nature of the state, we have to do that. There are a lot of good people here. It's a cross-community group, and we work together. So there need to be more cross-community stuff. And then you have this nightmare every summer with a parading thing, contesting ground. But, you know, why do you want to march somewhere where you're not welcome? That's another issue needs looked at. It's the cultural issue, and that probably ties into the Irish language thing as well. I don't speak Irish language, but I don't see why we shouldn't have an Irish language act. Scotland has one. Uh, Wales has one. I don't find it offensive. It doesn't annoy me. But it's part of the cultural thing that politicians haven't tackled. 
That's something they need to do to make this a better society. And people here are the warmest people you'll ever meet. Any stranger coming into Northern Ireland is given a warm welcome. Absolutely. But to each other, we still are suspicious. There's a lack of trust. It's hard not to be pessimistic, and I'm trying really hard to be optimistic, but I can see bear traps ahead in terms of what could happen politically. What happens here if the nationalists vote out guns, the excuse the pun, the unionists vote, and we have a vote that says we should have a united Ireland. We would need a really strong society here, a united society, to avoid violence again. Unfortunately, it is in our past 800 years, and it's not gone away, to quote Jerry Adams. <laughs>